Blog Talk Radio. Welcome segment of the Cisco and Fossil Hour Broadcast and Politics. Tonight we have a great show with a great guest, John Coons, uh, author of They Called Me Ishmael, set in the South Pacific based on a true events. This, this is a novel about war, gold, communist, China, and the emergence of a new nation. So John will be with us in couple of minutes, but let's start off with the latest news that's happening today. The Olympics are starting in Beijing. A lot of controversy. Some of, <laughs> some of the uh, athletes have tested positive for COVID. And COVID in China, I mean, they have a zero policy with COVID. Uh, but the increased numbers of infection all throughout mainland China have increased. So, and Wait, as, and as I Nancy Pelosi the, uh, said, uh, Cisco, I, Wait, thought hold the on. Chinese, I thought the Chinese solution to coronavirus was the firing squad. <laughs> <laughs> not quite, not quite. And Nancy Pelosi basically informed all the U.S. athletes to basically keep quiet, do not get the Chinese government upset because they're very ruthless individuals. And I think that has had a really not that has not been well received in the United States. Anyway, moving on, twelve countries in Europe are dropping the vaccine mandate as the numbers are increasing all over Europe. I think we're looking at a situation where there's going to be a pushback regarding uh, these mandates. I think uh, as the, I think, Prime Minister of Sweden said, we're going to have to live with the virus. That's about it. We cannot continue with lockdowns. We cannot, I mean, the global economy is just, it's been impacted. And as a study from John Hopkins indicated, the lockdowns have, have hurt more than they have benefited. So, uh, Mark, proceed ahead with your rent of the week. Okay. Uh, first of all, um, uh, we were opening the champagne bottles uh, at what happened to Facebook's uh, stock price today, down 24, 26%, uh, losing hundreds of billions of dollars. Um, it couldn't happen to a better – and, oh, by the way, I still have three days left of my 30-day Facebook jail sentence. <laughs> So, you know, if they're wondering why they're losing people, you have to be kidding me. And also, well, that's a, mm-hmm. I wanted Go to ahead. say we're sponsored by Students for a Better Future. We always have to get that in. Here we're 501c3c, and we accept donations on our website, Students for a Better Future. Okay, on you, Cisco. Definitely, definitely. Just before we bring on John uh, on the program, there's a couple of other things. The truck convoy that is um, in the city of Ottawa, capital of Canada, is basically having a huge impact throughout the world. Now we're seeing that in Italy, truckers are, are getting together. In Greece, as Mark had mentioned, the United States convoy, truck convoy, is starting uh, later on this month um, or earlier probably around the Super Bowl, uh, heading to D.C. So a lot of things are happening. I mean, it's, it's full of really interesting things that are happening in the global economy, which we'll, we'll be discussing with John also. Um, it's basically, it's holding up, but uh, once the lockdowns and, and we get more people and businesses opening up, I think the, the the economy will rebound and will move forward and have a, a even better better time because we, we we would have surpassed and defeated the pandemic. Anyway, John, welcome. Thank you. To, Thanks uh, for having me, guys. Definitely, definitely. So, as um, as I mentioned in regards to the Olympics. Um, What's your take on, on, on this whole the Chinese government? You live in, in China um, in regards to how they're 
basically locking down like they did for the Summer Olympics in 2008, um, taking control of of um, the the media and, and and what goes out and what goes out. How do you see this being played out for the next few weeks in in the Winter Olympics? Look. Um, I was I was in Beijing for the Summer Olympics. Um, uh, you know, China. I don't think uh, it. I don't think what China does this week or this month with respect to the Olympics is is really uh, as important as what what their plans are for the long run. And uh, I've lived in China. I lived there from 2005 to 2014. I've been doing business in China since 1984. And I know uh, China well. Uh, There's really two kinds of Chinese. There are the Chinese people themselves who are actually, believe it or not, very nice and and very lovely Mm -hmm. people. And then there's the Chinese Communist Party, which is basically a hundred million strong mafia fiefdom. And they they just have one goal, which is to bring their country back to where they believe it was in around 1800, which was the most dominant uh, uh, economy in the world. And uh, they think that's their rightful place. And whether it's sponsoring the Olympics, but, uh, you know, uh, squash all all, all uh, communications or stories or newsmaking or anything else they're doing, it's, it's all part of a big plan. Right. How different... You know, would, I wanted uh, to say one thing uh, on this topic, uh, Cisco and John. I have nothing but the utmost respect for the Chinese people from what they endured. <laughs> Excuse me. Just take from the 1930s with the Japanese ravaging, ravaging the nation. I mean, I saw eight millimeter films of the rape of Nanking where at every intersection there were piles of bodies that the Japanese were stacking them neatly at the intersections, I guess so that they could be scooped up. And the person filming this was on a rooftop and looking down Avenue as far as the eye could see piles of bodies. Anyway, they lived through that. They then lived through Mao's massacre of tens of millions of his own people. And look at them today, striving for global dominance. In in the 90 years, they've turned around from being just ravaged and raped and destroyed to striving for global dominance. I have a lot of respect for these people, no respect for the CCP. Right, right. And, and I agree with John. I mean, when I was in, in China with my son uh, for two weeks, uh, the folks, in, they were very, very nice. They went all out um, to help us in every possible way. Um, but is there a difference between the Chinese government of 2008 compared to the Chinese government of 2022, in, in, in your opinion? Yes, uh, there definitely is. Uh, the government in 2008, 2010, uh, Hu Xintao and those guys, they were, they were essentially caretakers. The, the real powers uh, in, in the Chinese uh, progression of governments has gone from Mao in the 70s to Deng Xiaoping in the 80s to uh, Jiameng in, in, in the early 2000s. And then uh, the administration that was there in 2008, 2010, to answer your question, were really basically uh, functionaries and, 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 and government bureaucrats. That is definitely not the case with Xi Jinping. Xi Jinping sees himself, himself, excuse me, as the inheritor of Mao and Deng Xiaoping's mantle as, as the complete leader of, of the, the Chinese country. And you've also got to understand that, look, our culture 
and the Chinese culture are completely different in terms of mm-hmm. where we came from, how we evolved, and how they evolved. What you've got to remember about the People's Republic of China is that it was dominated for eons by emperors, and those emperors were not seen as normal human beings. They were seen as sun kings and sun gods in so many words. And believe it or not, that's really not gone out of the, the, the Chinese masses. They still view their leaders, they, they're called the leaders, uh, as people above them, almost like they're on a different human being level, so that if the leaders decide they're going to take over their neighborhood and bulldoze all the buildings and build a new apartment building and profit from them, uh, nobody protests it. That's just, it's, it's a very different place. And today, Xi Jinping is, is really pulling all the levers He's controlling everything governmentally and socially in China, and he's even trying to control the country culturally. Yeah, and he just made himself president for life. So, yeah, that's another uh, different. Now, I think the Chinese economy, and correct me if I'm wrong, has been overinflated, as in the case of, uh, you know, Evergrande, Evergrande and, 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 and major Chinese companies that basically have not, uh, are, are on the brink of collapse. And that would be, that would have a ripple effect, not just in China or through Asia, but around the world. That's number one. I mean, they, uh, I remember my triple, uh, we, we were taken to some ghost towns. We, you see beautiful, beautiful buildings. And I would say, how come there's no one here? They're ghost towns. So my question, um, John, is the Evergrande and, and the other major companies, what's going to be that impact when that actually collapses? You're, you're a Goldman. You're a Wall Street guy. You, you know China very well. Uh, what, what, is Wall Street going to be rocking? I mean, uh, t- taking a beating when when that happens. Okay. Well, well. First of all, uh, I, I worked at Solomon Brothers and not Goldman, uh, and, and I mean, that Solomon, makes Solomon me Brothers. a Wall Street guy. That's that, okay. Yeah. But 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 here's what I would me say, too. guys. Uh, hey, John, I, I worked say. at Solomon Brothers also for several years. Really? In the well, early seventies, I, I ran the second shift. I was the second shift production supervisor. And, okay, well, and I, well I, was, Mer- I, was in, and I, I was in project finance. I worked for Mr. Simon, Jimmy Lowry, and Phil Law. I worked uh, the head of operations, but back then was Bill Tierney. Yeah, I remember Mr. Tierney. Yeah. <laughs> Small world, so, huh? Small worlds. So anyway, <laughs> look, what I was going to say is, Guys, in my humble opinion, it's a mistake to try and evaluate the People's Republic of China and its economy uh, the way we would try and evaluate uh, uh, the United States economy, for example. It's just a complete, you know, it's a completely different place. Evergrande, yeah. If you, I mean, if Evergrande securities are publicly traded. There's financial records on that. But to to try and evaluate Evergrande like we would evaluate, you know, like 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 uh, some like some big savings and loan back in the savings and loan crisis, mm-hmm. it, it's just a, it's just a mistake. Just let, let me give you an example. You know, Bank of China, right? I mean, you guys probably know this, but your audience may not. Mm-hmm. Take a guess right. what percent of the Bank of China's shares are publicly traded in the world. It's a public company, but take a guess what percentage of the Bank of China's shares are actually owned and traded on, on international stock exchanges. 5%, okay? So, so, so would you really ever, despite all the financial analysis you might be able to do as, as – despite all of the smarts you might have from 
you know, studying all bank stocks around the world. Would you really ever want to buy a share in Bank of China? No, <laughs> because who owns the rest of the company? The government, okay? And so whatever Bank of China does, it's really not a function of just what's on its balance sheet and, and cash flow statements. It's a question of what the government wants to do with the Bank of China. And so the answer with Evergrande is the same. What does the government want to do with Evergrande? And I assure you, they do not want Evergrande to fail, okay? So I don't believe Evergrande will fail. As a matter of fact, we've seen already the press clippings. I mean, look, they filed for bankruptcy, what, two months ago? Mm -hmm. I mean, nothing much has happened, right? Because everybody in China knows that the government is going to figure out a way to prop Evergrande up so that at least out in the international financial circles, there's no embarrassment. Got it. Got it. So, yeah, I mean, the reason I was bringing Evergrande up is because there's a lot of uh, uh, global companies that have investments in Evergrande. That's, that, that was where I was going with that. Yeah. Look, so, um Honestly, um, I think for 20 or 30 years, and I was one of them, uh, all kinds of foreigners, including a lot of Americans, went into China like it was a big open sandbox where everybody could play games and make a lot of money. I mean, look, at here, here's this new market with 1.3 billion people that's essentially been as asleep as Rip Van Winkle, and everybody said, oh, my God. Markets are open for business, whether it was Caterpillar or uh, John Deere mm-hmm. or General Motors or my company. We all went in there thinking, oh, we're going to make a ton of money. And I think China took advantage of that. Uh, I think the rest of the world was so interested in making money there, they didn't pay attention to what was really going on, which was they needed our money. There was... There was no equity in China in 2000, okay? I mean, yeah, there's a lot of money in the banks, but you, you can't build a company with just debt. You, you, you need equity. And, and all of the equity was from foreign sources or what, what they used to call dollar funds, okay? And, and right. today, honestly, guys, they don't need us anymore. They, they, have, they have their own economy. They've generated enough profits and enough cash flow, but that's a far cry from saying everything is okay. I think the biggest problems in China are that you, you can't, we all know this, whether it was, you know, communist Russia or, or any other state controlled financial apparatus, a bunch of guys in an office in Beijing can't manage something as, as massive and, and, many tentacled as the Chinese economy. And, and sure enough, they, they will fail. I just don't know how it will happen or when it will happen. Right, right. And, 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 but do you think the, the, the currency, the RMB, uh, has been overinflated? Uh, I'm not, you know, I'm not enough of an expert in that kind of thing to tell you. I, I, I do think that if the Chinese government wanted to manipulate it, no matter what the World Trade Organization rules or the International Monetary Fund rules say, they, they would manipulate it, okay? Uh, I don't know whether it's being manipulated today, but, but basically what I'm trying to say is everything in China is according to a government plan, which ultimately mm-hmm will result, in their view, of China being the dominant world power, not only financially, but culturally. Got it. Um, You are in the business of a solar solar company uh, and during the Obama administration, there was a big push for solar panels in the solar industry. Companies like Solandra that eventually fail. Where is this? Where is the solar panel 
solar uh, industry today? Because I know China was becoming the number one power control of the solar industry. Is that still true? And what's the, the current status? Okay. Well, just uh, uh, thank you for the question. Uh, j- just to be clear, yes, uh, I, I had several solar companies. That really wasn't what I was most known for business-wise. I was most known for hydroelectric power, but I had several solar companies around the world, uh, none in China, by the way. Uh, my solar companies when, were in India and Sri Lanka and Vietnam. But, but okay. let me now answer, answer your question. Uh, I would say, you know, roughly 2005 or so, uh, the leading solar companies in the world in terms of selling photovoltaic panels and and installing equipment related to photovoltaic panels, the leading companies in the world were Western, okay? By, By 2010, 12, 13, that had totally changed, and the leading manufacturers of photovoltaic panels and related installations were were all Chinese companies. Why? Because the Chinese government decided we're going to focus on that industry because it's a leading edge industry and we want to be number one in that industry. Now, did the Chinese come up with any of the intellectual property to first of all invent and then manufacture improved versions of those panels absolutely not guys all the intellectual property was developed starting with right in bell labs in in northern new jersey and then around europe and so forth the chinese never came up with any of the real just important intellectual property but they sunk billions and billions of dollars of government money into uh, building factories to manufacture those panels because uh, it's a manufacturing curve business. In other words, if you generate millions of megawatts of sales of photovoltaic panels, the incremental panel is going to be cheaper than the one you just made, okay? And so, so they became the dominant player in that industry now do i think they're going to continue to be the dominant player no i do not why is that because all of the photovoltaic panels today are silicon manufactured panels silicon is actually not the best material with which to generate photovoltaic power There are other specialty Mm. materials like gallium arsenide, for example, which are much improved over silicon. Silicon is fragile and brittle, Mm. and what what does that mean? Because it's fragile and brittle, if you're going to put it on a rooftop, you have to encase it with heavy steel, which means Mm. it's very expensive and it's very weighty. There are photovoltaic materials today that are ready for this. You can etch on the front windshield of your car, okay? You can etch on a stone facade of a, of a building, okay? That intellectual property is not coming from China. That's coming from U.S. companies and companies around the world. So to answer your question, right now, mm-hmm. China is the dominant player in silicon-based photovoltaic panels and and the related photovoltaic industry. Do I think that's going to be true in 10 years? No, especially not if people in Washington, D.C., and this is a stretch, okay, if people in Washington, D.C. start paying attention to some of this basic science and say, hey, we can still drive the bus here if we just harness some of this intellectual property and and get a lead on the silicon-based Chinese. Sorry, that's long-winded, but I, I happen to know a lot about the silicon, silicon photovoltaic business. Right, right. So, so at this point, uh, it, it, it appears to me that the solar industry is at a, at a standstill right now. It's, it's not it, – it's, 
because during the Obama era, you used to hear a lot about the solar industry. Now it's been taken up because of the new the new push through you know with climate change, um, you know fossil fuels, getting rid of fossil fuels, and as you know, I mean one of the first things that uh, when I arrived in China, especially when I arrived in uh, Xi'an city, the coal plants all over China, the pollu- sure. pollution, the pollution. Uh, so, in your opinion, where where do we see that the, the constant fighting, trying to push for climate change, and at the same time bring in the, the solar industry and the solar panels to be an offset to the fight against climate change. Okay, look, um, whenever you're talking about anything to do with electricity, the smartest thing to do is reduce everything in the conversation to cost per kilowatt hour, okay? Mm-hmm. And that will show you the way in terms of trends, okay? So, so it used to be that coal was over 50% of the production capacity in the United States of America. Why? Because a metric ton of coal costs $22 like forever, okay? And you could make power for about five or six cents per kilowatt hour at, at your generating plant before you put it in a distribution line to sell it to, you know, your, your, your distribution customers, okay? Well, guess what? When gas went down significantly because of all the additional drilling for gas and liquefied natural gas, okay, all of a sudden it was cheaper to burn gas in your base load equipment. So guess what? Coal started to drop from 51%. I think it's now like down to 13%. And, and gas became, you know, really the lead source of generation in the United States. Now, in terms of solar and the other one would be wind power, a lot of – look, I made my living and, and a reasonable living at that uh, until I became an author in, in renewable energy. And, and I, was, I was the first wind farm developer in the United States to take my company public. I was the first guy in the solar business as well. We did a lot of gas-fired turbine generators as well. Uh, but today – the problem is solar, you can only make power when the sun shines until, guess what, batteries, the technology catches up with solar. Because what, what's the best thing about solar, guys? The, the best thing about solar is not just its potential for low cost. It's what's called a distributed type of resource. You don't need to have a big central station power plant for economies of scale. You can do it at your house and your house and your house, right? So so that's that's the way to pursue solar. Uh, but solar only works when the sun shines until the batteries are reasonably cost effective as well. And that's happening, okay? I'm not sure Definitely. it's going to be these lithium batteries. I think lithium might be too expensive and also it's very environmentally invasive but when batteries can backstop solar you're going to see uh, a big change now the other thing i would just say uh and a lot of your listeners may not approve of this but don't count out nuclear look the reaction to nuclear over the past you know what has it been 60 70 years that nuclear power plants have been commercially available has been largely emotional. Okay. And, and, you know, I, I don't want right. anybody to get upset about that. You can talk no, about no. three mile Island and so forth, but, but yep. the, the fact of the matter is the, the nuclear power has, has really not been, you know, at all uh, over the top in terms of a dangerous source of generation. It's also Definitely. completely, clean. You got to get rid of the waste. I understand that. There are trade-offs with nuclear that I think will, over time, uh, as people 
get look look at Europe for example. They want to get off of coal. They even want to get off of gas. They want to go to solar and wind. And then look what happened to that to them this fall when the weather changed. You know, so so okay. it, it it takes kind of cool heads to look at the power situation for the future. But it all comes down to cost per kilowatt hour and being kind of objective about the technology. Definitely, John. We have uh, callers on the line. Two five four. Um, you have a, a question or comment for John? A yeah, comment. Um, a... I think that the nuclear uh, thing's going to come back because it's cost effective, but it's dangerous still. Great. Uh, well, you, you guys know who uh, uh, Mr. Crichton is. He wrote Jurassic Park. Yes. Yes. You know that. Yeah. Okay. Well, can I ju- can I just make a suggestion? You, you might want to Google this guy because he he wrote a book on just what we're talking about now. What he wanted to do was write another kind of Jurassic Park book, but about a major environmental disaster that happened in the in in, in the world. And he thought, well, that, that starts with Chernobyl. I, I, I got to go to Chernobyl and research that, and I'll make Chernobyl-like accidents the basis of this new book. Well, he never wrote the book, he said, because when he got to Chernobyl, here's what he discovered, okay? There was a lot less death and destruction than he had thought. It, it, it turns out, the number of people who actually died from the Chernobyl event itself. I'm not talking about stuff that went up in the air or anything like that, or what happened to the cows in the field, but it was less than a hundred people. Okay. And, and my only point is to this lady who just called in. Yeah. I think overwhelmingly it gets down to the cost is very attractive. And when you assess the real environmental impacts and manageability of nuclear, I'm not sure it's as bad as everybody thinks. But uh, that, that takes some saying to, to, get, to get there. I, I realize that. And po- politically, it may not ever be acceptable. <laughs> uh, three, 314, do you have a question or comment for John? Well, <clears throat> I really appreciate the conversation. I heard John make mention about hydropower. Hydropower is probably the most efficient that there is, and quite natural. It's based on water and gravity. But uh, I myself, I'm not ready to get rid of what we call fossil fuels. Actually, it's anaerobic fuels because there's an abundance of it. Mm-hmm. It just don't make sense. Uh, if they want to make some difference in the climate, grow more trees. Grow trees in the Sahara. Look at that vast space there that at one time was lush, green, and tropical. Grow trees and the carbon dioxide, of course, we know that that's plant food. Things would uh, hopefully get back to nature. Uh, Your major hurricane developed off the west coast of Africa because of that hot desert air that's being accumulated there, and it causes uh, those concerns. And, you know, you talk about solar energy. Those regions in the northern latitude, you practically have to put a solar panel perfectly vertical in order to receive any rays from the sun. And the sun don't progress that far north anyway. It stops about 23 and a half degrees. So let's use what God gave the planet and gave countries, natural fuels, i.e. gas, and also whatever they can do with oil, and then let's just run from there until at some time in the future. We all know the sun's going to burn out one of these days because we won't be here. <laughs> so let's enjoy it. Thank you. Yeah, very, very good analysis. Go, uh, go ahead, John. Well, I, I would uh, agree with uh, most of what uh, your caller just said. I was certainly not advocating uh, getting out of the business of making electricity with natural gas, for example, I, I would say, and I, I don't, I, I don't think he would quarrel with this. Your, your caller, making electricity with with oil doesn't doesn't make a lot of sense. And just so everybody knows, the most expensive way 
to make a kilowatt hour of uh, electricity is with diesel. Okay, so so I think uh, what your caller was said was right. I mean, let's let's use what God gave us, uh, but also let's 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 put our green eye shades on and pay attention to the dollars and cents. Definitely. Let's talk about your book. They call me Ishmael. Um, how did that come about? What what was the purpose? And 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 how do you um, how do you feel about the different types of books that you you know South of the Cloud, which I got took a look at it. Uh, Bell a Ballads of a Tin Man in the Chinese Fortune. Of all those books, what makes this one more special? Well, um, thank you for asking. Uh, this, this is my best novel so far. This is my fourth. I've actually written five, and the next one will come out probably next year. And the last couple have been published by Post Hill Press, which is my publisher in New York. Um, everything that I've written about in, in my first novel, China Fortunes, all the way to this one, they call me Ishmael, is, is based on my personal experience experiences so so this book is based on true events and essentially what it's about is an island called bougainville in the remote stretches of the south pacific and uh what happened in bougainville was first of all all the way back in the 1960s when it was a part of the territory of Papua New Guinea, which was a territory of Australia, mm-hmm. a big mm-hmm. Australian mining company that you guys might have heard of, Rio Tinto, one of the biggest in the world, yeah. yes, discovered copper and gold in Bougainville. As a matter of fact, the mine they built subsequent to their discovery, the Panguna mine, was the largest and most profitable copper and gold mine in the world when it operated from 1972 to 1989. And it only consumed about 20 or 30% of its ore resources. So according to most world-class geologists, there is still about 100 billion. I didn't say million. I said $100 billion worth of copper and gold in the Panguna mine on this little island called Bougainville, where at the time they built the mine, there was 200,000 people there. Now, uh, what happened after they built the mine is the mine was hugely profitable, so the shareholders got a decent return, but the party who got the most vig, if I can use that word, out of the mine was Papua New Guinea, the, the parent government of Bougainville, which was at the time a province and then became an independent country three years after the mine opened. And the shareholders of Rio Tinto got 37% of the spoils of the mine. The, the government of Papua New Guinea, which is 800 miles away, not plagued at all by the pressures of mining or social concerns and so forth, got 63% of the cash, and the poor Bougainvillians mm. only got about, about 5%. So, of course, that led to a conflict which spilled over into an all-out civil war called the Crisis, which shut down the mine in 89, and it was never reopened until now. And the crisis went on till, for 11 years until... Bougainville and Papua New Guinea signed what's called the Bougainville Peace Agreement in 2001. And then Bougainville was given in that agreement. Uh, uh, it became an autonomous region of Papua New Guinea, not a province, but an autonomous region with its own constitution, its own elected wow. president, its own elected legislature, lawmaking, everything except defense and taxation functions, and... Most importantly, within 20 years, Bougainvillians could decide in an independence referendum if they wanted to remain part of Papua New Guinea or become independent. Okay? Now, you ask, how did this whole thing start? The chiefs of Bougainville, and, and these are landowner chiefs, because the Constitution 
gave all of the resource rights back to the landowners because this is part of Melanesia, the Melanesian region of the South Pacific. Mm -hmm. And in Melanesia, uh, the resources under the ground and above the ground don't go to the government like they do in Australia. They go to the landowners. So the landowners uh, took over the mine, took over all the resources, and the landowners were concerned because they hadn't yet voted for independence in 2015, but the clock was ticking, and they had not rebuilt their economy. And they heard about me from what I had been doing in China of a, a, of a similar vein and invited mm-hmm. me over there in August of 2015. And the bottom line is I stayed, and I stayed for three reasons. First of all, there are wonderful moral and ethical people that is most of them there's always a few bad apples everywhere but but these people are <laughs> uh, very religious there's there's no ethnic or cultural strike whatsoever in bougainville number one number two uh they're sitting on not just the hundred billion of resources in the panguna mine but most geologists estimate there's another two or three panguna mines in bougainville and they're wow. sitting on a huge amount of the Pacific uh, fishery for skipjack tuna, which is, which is essentially most of the time when you eat a, a tin of tuna out of a can, that's you're eating skipjack. Okay, so second reason I stayed is not just were the people lovely, but there's a huge resource. The third reason is because they asked me to. They said, listen, mm. you're a foreigner. Most foreigners come here, they try and find one of us to bribe. Uh, when they do that, they go back to their office tower, wherever, Australia, United States, wherever. They leave a bunch of problems in their wake. We don't want anybody like that. We need, however, someone with some access to money and technological and in- infrastructure development skills who can help us rebuild our economy because we'd like to vote for independence when we get the chance. And we can't do that without somebody like you. So I decided to stay and I've lived Mm. in Bougainville. This is, I'm going into my sixth year now. I've lived in Bougainville for eight to nine months a year. And the most important thing that happened to me happened in 2018 when the most respected man on the island, a man named Ishmael, came to mm. me, and he, he is the leader of the Bougainville Revolutionary Army that won the Civil War with the PNG Defense Force. And he said, uh, John, we've got a problem, and it's both my problem and your problem. I said, what, what could that possibly be? And he said, the Chinese have been coming here trying to bribe people to get control of these mines and these fisheries. And there's going to be uh, an independence referendum. I need somebody to back me so that I can convince the people, first of all, to vote for independence, and second of all, to vote for me when the presidential election opens up in 2020, because the existing president who is basically ineffectual, was a lame duck. So I, mm. I talked to my shareholders at my company, which is called Numa Numa Resources, and we decided to work with Ishmael. And uh, the independence referendum took place in December of 2019. 98% of the Bougainvillians registered to vote voted for independence. And then in wow. 2020, we were able to get uh, Ishmael elected president, which means uh, that he's negotiating independence right now with Papua New Guinea, and they expect to be independent by 2025. So Ishmael is going to be uh, president of the newest nation on earth. And this novel, they call me Ishmael, is, is about all of that. Wow, this is an incredible, incredible experience. And, and yep. so... So now are you an honorary uh, citizen of Bougainville? <laughs> let's let's put it this way: I, I, I they haven't given me a piece of paper saying that, and and I, I 
probably they wanted me, you know, they, they wondered what the heck I was doing there for the first three years. But <laughs> now, uh, I mean, I, I walk down the street and everybody says, hi, John, you know, so I, I guess I'm getting accepted. Yeah. And, and what's the population of uh, Wingerville? Three three hundred thousand people today. It was two hundred thousand. Three hundred thousand people today. Two hundred thousand before the Civil War, and twenty thousand people died in the Civil War. Just to let you know how brutal a conflagration it was. Wow, ten percent wow. of the population. Yeah, ten percent of the population. Just just like our Civil War. Yeah. Where can we get your book, John? Um, all, all of your okay. books. Well, thank you. Thank you for asking. Uh, it's being published by a company called Post Hill Press, just like it sounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're located in New York. Uh, you can go to posthillpress.com and you can uh, reserve a copy of the book. It's being released on February 8th, which is next week. And you, right. of course, can also uh, pre-order a copy of the book at Amazon.com or your favorite bookstore. And you do you, you do you have a? I know you have a website. So if you want to give it to, I have a website. It's www.johnjohnd as in Douglas Coons K U H N S at gmail.com, or you can email me at my author uh, email address, which is johncoonsauthor.com. Fantastic. At gmail.com. At gmail.com. At gmail.com. Right. Exciting, exciting times. Uh, You you had mentioned that the Chinese have uh, been trying to look for some of those resources in Bungaville, uh, as they have in Africa, you know, they've invested a lot of money in Africa, um, but it appears that they're pulling back now. Your vast amount of experience with living in China and doing business in China, do you think that that's an economic issue or a political issue, why they're, they're beginning to move away from investing in China? I mean, in, in Africa. Uh, look, the, the the Chinese people when they go abroad. I'll tell you a funny story. Okay, so so when I when I was in China, I owned a company. I I was the chairman and CEO. I shouldn't say I owned it. It was owned by shareholders, and we were listed on the New York Stock Exchange. China Hydroelectric Corp was the largest a foreign-owned power company in China from, from the time we put it together in 2005 mm-hmm. to when we sold it in 2013. And uh, I got to know some uh, uh, executives in the energy business in the Pe- People's Republic of China. And one guy came to me one time, and uh, he was the head of a, of a big, huge state-owned oil company. I, I won't say the name, but Big, big, huge company. And he goes, hey, uh, Mr. Coons, uh, I'm thinking of going down to Texas. So do, do, you know, do you know the governor there? I said, well, I don't know the current governor. I, I've known governors there because I actually built the first wind farm in Texas, which is parenthetical. Mm-hmm. Wow. But I said, well, why, why, why do you ask about the governor? He goes, well, we, we want to you know, get into the oil and gas business in Texas, so we need to meet the governor. I said, well, why do, you, why do you think you need to meet the governor? And he looked at me like I was crazy. I said, well, look, let me explain something to you. The governor really can't help you be successful in the oil and gas business in China, the, in, in Texas, excuse me. The only way you can achieve is, success in Texas is on the merits, just like everyone else. you got to find the right leases and you got to drill the right properties and you got to have some luck and he just looked at me like i was crazy because the only way (laughs) they know how to do it is like in these african countries go there find the leader bribe the heck out of the guy okay and and get get rights to stuff and that never works the people the little people down underneath the people on the ground who are being 
deprived when that kind of activity happens are, are when they get a chance. It may not be immediately. They're going to rise up against that. And, and so the Chinese in country after country in Africa have, you know, have people resent them. And they're not seen as being helpful. The other thing, guys, I'll just point out is you look at any Chinese operation, any country in the world, I don't care if it's Brazil, Bougainville, whatever, do they ever hire any locals? Absolutely not. The whole thing with Chinese money going overseas to finance these countries, companies, excuse me, is because every year in the People's Republic of China, 20 million people are going to come off the rice paddies in the West, still rural and uncivilized, and expect mm-hmm. a job in, and, and a hotel room in, in a factory in eastern China, and the, the government can't do that anymore. So they're saying, hey, let's finance these companies, take them overseas. So, so if you go to Africa and you look at a mining venture that, that's owned by China, you're not going to see any Africans working in that mine. It's going to be Chinese. And how do you think the locals feel about that? Definitely, definitely. I mean, it, it, it's. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned that because they have taken over the energy uh, production and en- energy uh, facilities in Ecuador. They loaned a whole bunch of money to the Ecuadorian government, and now they control the energy powers, uh, energy um, systems in Ecuador. Ecuador is not the first, and it won't be the last, (laughs) unfortunately. (laughs) I wanted to touch on the supply issue. Uh, In China, where the latest COVID zero policy is impacting uh, the closing and the shutdown of some of these very important ports from Shanghai to Shenzhen to Ningbo to Wanjing, uh, and some of them in eastern, eastern China. Where do you see that supply chain crisis on a global scale uh, impacting the United States? Uh, honestly, I, I haven't got a clue. I, I don't know anything about that business. It sounds incredibly complicated but i I just don't know a thing about it yeah definitely definitely okay so as we we move along uh there's been talk that taiwan which is a, a country that i've been to that i really enjoyed my visit there uh preparing for a chinese invasion of taiwan what would that create, in your opinion, with the businesses, huh. you know? Right. Okay. Uh, well, the, the amount of ec- the economic that is being done in Taiwan is a big producer, semiconductors. It's, it's, the, it's the biggest. I mean, okay, so, so mm-hmm. let, let's go back. To, in order, that's a good question. Let's go back. I think it's important for your listeners to understand that there was a man named Alan Foster Dulles. He was Secretary of State. Back uh, under Eisenhower and then then Kennedy uh, back in the late 50s and 60s. And Mr. Dulles was very concerned about containing an international threat coming out of that part of the world. But it wasn't China. It was Russia. Okay. And so Mr. Mr. Dulles decided that we would employ what's called an, an island chain strategy. And that is we would, we would try and control the island chains as Russia moved eastward out of, you know, uh, Russia, out of Siberia, et cetera. We would control uh, their access and egress uh, with submarines and bases and shipping and so forth uh, in the first island chain, the second island chain, and the third island chain. So what is the first island chain? It's... It's the islands that are closest to the People's Republic of China and Siberia, and those would be from Japan running all the way down through the western Philippines to Borneo, right in the middle of that critical 
first diamond chain is Taiwan. Only, of course, back then they called it Formosa, okay? So even back with Mr. Eisenhower and Mr. Kennedy, Alan Foster Dulles, who wasn't, wasn't right on a, a lot of things, okay, said, we've got to control this first diamond chain. Taiwan is right in the middle, so therefore we have to control Taiwan, okay? When I say control, I don't mean tell them what to do every day, but whether it's militarily or diplomatically or both, we've got to have clearer understandings with the Taiwanese people. And keep in mind, this was back when Taiwan was run by Chiang Kai-shek, okay? By the way, mm-hmm. the second island chain, second island chain starts a little eastward. It, it includes like from Guam down to Papua New Guinea and so forth. And the third island chain uh, starts even eastward more, and it runs down to some names you've heard of, Guadalcanal and Bougainville mm-hmm. and the Solomon Islands, okay, which is why China covets Bougainville. It's not just for the copper and gold. It's, it's for the strategic ports in that third island chain. So getting back, though, to Taiwan, um, from Mr. Dulles on, I don't think we've really ever dropped strategically that concept of uh, containment via the, these island chains. But clearly in Washington, uh, people have not paid any attention over the last 20 or 30 years. All of our attention, as you guys know, has been focused on, first of all, Vietnam and then the Middle East and so forth. And it's only now going back to where I think it's appropriate to focus for the next decades which is going to be in in the Pacific. So as far as Taiwan, mm-hmm. there's really, uh, I think, two issues. Uh, number one, when's Xi Jinping going to feel that it's timely? And if he doesn't do it, he's going to let, most importantly, himself down. Because make no mistake about it, this man has a huge ego. I, I've met him. I didn't meet him when he was president. I met him when he was uh, governor of Fujian province because I was building five hydroelectric projects there. And I can mm-hmm. tell you he has a huge ego, and the taking of Taiwan and bringing it back into the fold of the PRC mm-hmm. is what he lives for, okay? So if it were just up to him, he'd be there already. In order to, with the least amount of aggravation, two things have to happen. Number one, they have to have so many armaments surrounding and controlling Taiwan that they can spring into action within a matter of hours. And keep in mind, our fleet right now, Indopac, is still in Pearl Harbor you know, like a couple of days away, steaming across the Pacific. So their strategy, I believe, is, hey, let's keep building up until we get so much control over time and space that the U.S. looks at sending, you know, thousands of men and men in planes and ships and so forth over right. the Pacific and decides, you know, it's just not worth it. The second thing you know, is, wait, I wanted to try what, a, what I about try? The I wanted to say, people? I want oh, to hold, hold on, Mark. Oh, 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 hold on, Mark. Uh, uh, let John finish it. Oh, okay. I was just going to say the, the, sec, the second, the second critical variable is the Chinese, is the Taiwanese people. Are they going to help defend their island? How do they feel about it? And you know, I've yep. been to Taiwan myself. I, I'm not sure that they're convinced. You know, the same thing is going on right now in the Ukraine. Uh, the Ukraine people sound like they're all willing to pick up a shovel or a gun and, and, and work with the army to, def- to repulse the Russians. Are the Taiwanese really willing to do that? I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. You know what concerns me with this? Here's what concerns me. If the Chinese do militarily attempt to take Taiwan, I what I see the Taiwanese doing is – circumventing that massive force and attacking the Chinese economic centers, their ports, which would heavily influence everyone in the West 
if the major Chinese ports are taken out of action. I, I could because I haven't been to Taiwan, but I've known Taiwanese people, and yes, I find I have found them very nationalistic. At least the ones here in this country. Oop, it's ten o'clock. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, thank you, uh, John. It's been a pleasure. Always yeah. come back. Okay, guys. Whenever. Hey guys, thanks for having me. All right. Yeah, real interesting. Right. I, I, I don't. Hey guys, guys, don't worry. In the yeah. end, in the end, we're gonna win. Okay. Don't worry. All right. <laughs> All right. Thanks for having me. We'll All have right, another exciting care. guest on the Cisco and Falso Now Broadcasting Politics. God bless America. Thank you.